and welcome to the TNW podcast, the show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature occasional interviews with some of the most interesting people in the industry. My name is Andrei Degler. I am the head of media at TNW. And I'm Linnea Algen, senior editor here at TNW. How are you today, Andy? I'm good. I'm really good. Had a reasonably relaxing weekend with terrible weather, but looking forward to the week ahead. And I think you're looking forward to the week ahead even more than I do. I'm looking forward <laughs> to the next two weeks ahead. Yes, I will be um, escaping this terrible weather and um, taking myself to some warmer climbs. That's uh, that, that's really good for you, and I still don't know how exactly I'm going to be able to host this podcast without you in the in the coming weeks. Aww. But <laughs> we'll see. But we'll definitely we'll definitely be missing you. Thank you. That's nice to hear. So on to the episode then. Today we are going to discuss AI safety, uh, Europe regulating big tech, but not quiet. Then snowmobile emissions and the coast of chatbot hallucinations. You will also hear an interview with Gerard Gregg, uh, the managing director of Founders at the University of Cambridge. And he is also known as the founder and former chief executive of Tech Nation in the UK, among many other things. So, uh, moving forward to the story that we did cover this week, Linnea, what did uh, jump uh, at you most? Yeah, so, I want to talk about a study. Now, academic Love studies study. <laughs> academic studies do perhaps not always garner the most excitement, as demonstrated by Andre's reaction just now. But this one contains the risks of AI espionage hmm. and recommendations to counteract it. And it, this relates to hardware. The recommendations are based on a report on AI safety, and it was co-led by three institutes at Cambridge University, along with OpenAI, actually, mm -hmm. and at the GovAI research community. But what is interesting about this, I think, is that we talk a lot about regulating the actual models, AI models, and how they are trained. But when it comes to potential threats from hostile states or other actors who are using AI um, against another you know, in one form or other, such as like mass surveillance or information warfare and etc. The recommendations that the researchers make seems to be about the need for stronger regulation of hardware to mitigate potential risks. Hardware. Okay. So what exactly do they suggest here? How, how, how can you regulate uh, hardware in this regard? Well, so they argue that Indeed, governments have been focused on regulating AI for software. The physical hardware component is being overlooked, and mm -hmm. this could lead to, in their words, disastrous consequences. But one of the key proposals put forward in this report is the idea of tagging chips with unique identifiers and creating a global registry to track their movements, so computer chips. Kind of like you, you know, tag your cat. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So if your if your chip is lost, you can always you can always find it back. Yeah. But okay. And what do what do you make of this suggestion then? I mean, you've been looking at uh, AI and safety for a while. Do you think it actually could could help mitigate these uh, risks at all? Well, it's definitely an interesting concept. Uh, I think the idea behind it is that by tagging the chips and monitoring their movements through global registry, then we can potentially prevent unauthorized use or or smuggling of these chips, say for malicious uh, purposes. It's kind of like having a digital fingerprint for each chip that would allow us to trace its origin and track its usage. Okay, but then and how are you actually supposed to sort of do it in practice? Uh, did, did they even talk about it at all in the recommendations or uh, was it just a theoretical uh, type of thing? Uh, from my understanding, it's a theoretical thing, uh, how to implement it, how in detail thus far has not been presented. But I think... 
we do have to consider like how would we actually go about this because no, it's kind of a massive undertaking. Uh, but first of all, it's not for all chips, not all computer chips, like the ones we have in our, our TVs and in our smartphones, for example, but the ones that could be used in supercomputers to train AI. So like the NVIDIA ones that we discussed the other yes, week. Yes, precisely. But the scale of implementation would, of course, still be pretty substantial and it would require cooperation and compliance from, say, chip producers mm -hmm. and sellers and, and governments across the globe and you know let's not forget the challenges of maintaining accuracy in the registry through regular audits um, we'd probably have to get another entirely new regulatory body to do all the tracking and you know the cybersecurity considerations um, regarding this alone are yeah and I also can imagine that the industry is going to be ecstatic about uh, about the uh, the idea right yeah well it's definitely a complex issue. On one hand, there's this growing awareness of the risks associated with AI, which could garner support for tighter regulations, although I think we've seen how the industry feels about that from their lobbying of the EU's mm -hmm. AI Act, for instance. Um, so yes, companies may be hesitant to embrace stricter regulations that could potentially hinder their growth and competitiveness in the market. But, you know, they might not have that much to say about it. Uh, I think that will depend on how things evolve now over the next few years because you have computer chips especially those that can be used in hpc high performance computing mm -hmm. uh systems to train ai are already subject to export controls true yeah that, yeah that, um, that's also true yeah course. for example from the us to china yeah. and this also impacts european businesses um, for example asml mm -hmm. okay um and navigating the balance between security concerns and then economic interests will most certainly be a challenge right and if you if you look at the at the report so that the study, it also suggests uh, that there are other measures that could be taken, right? I remember there were uh, compute caps and uh, smart switches to control the usage of AI chips in general. Do you think uh, these make any sense? Do you think they are maybe better uh, to control uh, than just uh, straight up tagging? Well, I think. Compute caps could potentially limit the proliferation of AI technologies, particularly in sensitive areas like military applications. Mm -hmm. um, but again, who would set them? Um, who would make sure they are implemented? Already, for example, China is not disclosing the actual uh, power of its fastest uh, high-performance computing systems. Oh, is that um, the case? Yeah, they so, so stopped. So we know that there are certain so but we don't uh, know how many? Yes. No, we don't know how how fast they uh -huh. are. So you have this list, this biannual list called the Top 500, mm -hmm. uh, which lists the top 500 fastest computer systems in the world. But it's a voluntary thing. And so it's the people who run the computers or whoever owns the computer has to submit the measurements mm -hmm. for how fast these computers are to the people running the top 500 project. And for the first time ever, China is no longer disclosing its fastest systems on the list that came out in November 2023. That sounds highly suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say it's not. Uh, it might also be a reaction against these export controls mm -hmm. because what some critics of these export controls say is that it's sort of galvanizing or, or rallying uh, geopolitical mm -hmm. opponents uh, rather than fostering a, a more open uh, atmosphere. 
internationally. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, and then the smart switches? So the smart switches, I mean, they would offer a mechanism to terminate dangerous use of AI, which would add an extra layer of control. However, I think the effectiveness and practicality of something like that would need to be carefully evaluated because there is, and I, I will agree with the industry on this, that there is an impact on like innovation and, and technological advancement. For now, it's just a report with recommendations, but it will be interesting to see how policymakers and industry leaders potentially respond to them in the coming years. Again, I believe it will depend a lot on how things will evolve in terms of geopolitical cybersecurity, etc. But and I also think that, you know, we're just seeing the beginning of sort of the semiconductor and computer chip um, geopolitics. So you think there will be much more limitations in regulation? I don't think there will be less. <laughs> well, fair enough. And speaking of uh, regulation, can I just uh, use it as a segue to, to the next segment? Please, feel Thank free. Thank you. So I wanted to talk about, in as a story that we didn't cover, I wanted to highlight one that's about the latest decision of the European Commission that regards uh, big tech and the, the Digital Markets Act, uh, also known as DMA, our favorite. And so mm -hmm. last week, it was interestingly announced that after five months of investigating, the Commission will not actually apply its strictest set of rules to a few services, including Apple's iMessage, as well as Microsoft's Edge browser, Bing search engine, and Microsoft advertising. The, la the latter I actually didn't know even existed. So the rules in question are mostly about the services interoperability uh, levels. So uh, the idea was that if these services are designated as core platform services, they would have to be open for other players basically to participate. And my main thought on the story is that I don't get it. I am very much looking forward to reading the actual reasoning of the commission, which hasn't been published yet. But until then, I am not quite sure why, for example, iMessage isn't a so-called core platform service, while, for example, WhatsApp or Messenger, the Facebook Messenger, are. Well, I I seem to remember something about both Apple and Microsoft petitioning the commission not to include these services on the basis that they didn't have enough users. But this doesn't seem to be true for iMessage. I, I believe it a Bing <laughs> and and the Edge browser. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> but um but uh, of iMessage, I don't no. find that as a satisfactory explanation. No, ab absolutely not. And uh, I, I really, I, like, I don't have an iPhone, so I don't really use iMessage, but I guess uh, you as an iPhone user use it like daily, right? Yes, absolutely. So, so, so it's like it's pe people are using it and there are enough iPhone users in the world to uh, justify it being a core platform service. I think I have like one possible reason that I read about uh, the other week as well, uh, and it was that uh, Apple could have managed to placate the regulators by announcing that it would add support of uh, what's known as RCS messaging to iMessage uh, sometime in 2024. In plain English, what it actually means is that later this year, Android users will get a bit closer to participating in iMessage chats at the same level as iOS users, but probably not exactly at the same level, and then there still will be some sort of a tier system. And if you don't know what I'm talking about here, I think Linia knows because you're an iPhone user, so I didn't know it. 
I only learned about it uh, uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, is, uh, I will give you a little bit of context. It's good to hear it from an Android user's perspective. The thing is that I never actually had an issue with this. Like I never used texts at all. But uh, but in general, and I think it's a much bigger uh, issue in the US actually than uh, than it is in Europe. But iMessage is obviously the default messaging app on iOS. So users with iPhones and actually iPads get a great experience on the app, including encryption, media embeds, uh, type notifications, uh, read receipts, uh, and so on and so forth. However, if there is an iMessage group chat and an Android user enters it, then the experience gets significantly downgraded for everyone in the group. So in simple that terms, you go. So in simple terms, you go from a WhatsApp level of uh, sort of chatting comfort to a plain like SMS and MMS level with uh, this like crappy image and video quality and so on and so forth. So basically, the level of uh, of messaging, uh, if you will, the feature level of messaging is determined by the lowest uh, common denominator, which in this case uh, would be an an Android uh, Android phone. I don't think I've ever been in any iMessage group chats, so I can't I can't speak for that experience. But yeah, that doesn't sound fun at all. Yeah, and as I said, I think it's a it's a lot more common in the U.S. Just like having these group chats, and then like there are literally people who are not being added to family iMessage chats because they are Android users, and people just want to keep sending proper videos and voice messages and all that type of thing without seeing the so-called green bubble. So the green bubble is the user who doesn't have who doesn't have oh, iOS, no. and usually the bubbles are blue, right? Like in in iMessage. Yeah, yeah, so that's yeah. Uh, that's the whole point. Ah, I see. Okay, so, but so what would have changed if iMessage did fall under the strict DMA rules? So theoretically, designating iMessage as a core platform service under the DMA would have fixed that, and uh, then it would make Apple build a proper interoperability level for iMessage. But now it's going to get away with the half-hearted addition of this RCS support, which I think is totally not the same. However, I will also mention here, uh, before wrapping this up, uh, that it's not like the commission is getting all that uh, cozy and nice with Apple. Just the other day, the news broke that the company will be fined 500 million euros within a few weeks, and that's now uh, not confirmed uh, officially. But there will be apparently a fine for Apple's anti-competitive behavior in the music streaming segment. And this is something that we also did cover the other day, so I will have a link uh, in the show notes uh, to show you where it is. So, the commission giveth, and the commission most certainly taketh away. <laughs> right, moving forward to the learnings of the week. What did you learn, Linnea? So I'm going north today, kind of to my roots, I guess. Um, You're going south today. Uh -huh. Okay, so I'm physically <laughs> going south, but before that, I'm going to talk about something that's happening up north. Although I am cheating a little because we did actually cover this story on the site, but I found it interesting and I learned something while reading it. So I will share it with you. So it's about snowmobiles. Have I you ever written one? Yes. Have you ever written one? <laughs> no, I have not. My cousin has one and he really, really loves it. And he keeps uh, saying I should come out and, and <laughs> take it for a tour. But we'll see. Maybe after, after the holidays, if there is still some snow left. So anyway, snowmobiles. They have largely avoided environmental regulation. Uh, and this is because the common thinking seems to have been that the sector is too small to have too much of an impact. Is it the case, though? Um, well, 
they are pretty heavy polluters, and I will get into that a little bit more mm. in a second. But unlike cars, they're not required to include a catalytic converter that removes pollutants from emissions. Uh, and many run on these two-stroke engines, and they spit much of the fuel that they use straight out of the exhaust, unburned. Yeah, I used to have one of those like uh, two-stroke uh, scooters when I was uh, was a teenager, and I remember all these uh, yeah, the all these uh, all, all the, the gas all the fumes and like literally uh, gasoline flying out of the exhaust uh, yeah. pipe. <laughs> um, God. And so this results in that in one hour, a traditional snowmobile can emit as much hydrocarbon pollutants and greenhouse gases beyond CO2. We're not even talking about CO2 now, but such as methane and propane and particles of this unburned fuel as a 2008 model automobile emits in 1,700 kilometers of driving. Wow. In one hour. Yeah. But there is a growing movement to decarbonize snowmobiling. And one of the front runners is a Swedish startup called Vida, and they just launched its pre-production model in Kiruna. And this is why I learned about this, because our reporter, Sean, got to take this model called the Alpha for a test ride, and it sounds like it was a lot of fun. So do go check out that story. We'll leave a link in the show notes. Yeah, I just read the story myself over the weekend as well, and uh, it it reads uh, it reads great, and the topic is uh, really interesting. I'm really surprised that uh, there was such a lack of uh, regulation. There has been such lack of regulation. To... Yeah, I can't see you know the snowmobile petrol um, lobby group being <laughs> as successful as uh, OpenAI and uh, company. So. Yeah, I have no idea why they're flying under the radar in that way, but it's nice to know that something's being done about yeah, it. Yeah, no, exactly. So what did you learn this weekend? Okay, so uh, my learning has little to do with Europe, but it's more of a global sort of thing. So, uh, And it has to do with AI. Again, I'm terribly sorry for this, but there is no hiding from the topic. You don't have to apologize to me. <laughs> I, I am terribly sorry to our listeners as well. In case you don't care about AI, well, I mean... I'm not sure what uh, what can be done because uh, AI is coming at you from every page of every publication now, and there are so many interesting stories that we just cannot uh, uh, cannot not cover them. So AI, we are, in my opinion, entering a really interesting time in regards to the usage of chatbots in customer support, which is an industry where AI, of course, could possibly bring, I think, enormous savings for all kinds of companies, right? How much cheaper would it have been to have an AI uh, chatbot responding to customer queries uh, than like normal uh, uh, customer support uh, agents? Yes, absolutely. I do hope that there will be a little bit of efficiency improvements as we go along because it can be quite frustrating sometimes. <laughs> Although they are more polite, most often than customer yes. service agents. Yes, that is true, but uh, there is a dark side to it. So, case in point, last week, a judge ruled that uh, Air Canada, the airline, has to honor a refund policy that was effectively hallucinated by its AI-powered chatbot. So it's a long story, but uh, to make it pretty short, the bot had said that a bereavement rate refund could be issued after a ticket is purchased, uh, but that totally wasn't the case. Basically, according to the policy, you had to first request uh, a special rate and then you could purchase the ticket, not the other way around. Uh, and then what's also remarkable here in this case is how Air Canada argued that it was not responsible for the issue. According to the court ruling, the company essentially stated that, I quote, the chatbot is a separate legal entity that is responsible for its own actions. 
That's a very interesting argument, I have to say. And especially since the court ruled not that long ago in the UK that only humans can be named as inventors. Yeah, exactly. So this is just a... <laughs> so th- th- there's a lot of mental gymnastics involved, I'm pretty sure, in, in this argument, uh, which clearly doesn't hold water. But as I said, I think it signifies a whole brave new world of issues when it comes to hallucinating chatbots. So what I actually learned this week is if you get advice from an AI chatbot, make screenshot, they can be useful in court later. That is very sound (laughs) advice, I have to say. That's definitely news you can use. Now, let's move to today's featured interview, and that is with uh, Gerard Gregg, the founder and former chief executive of Tech Nation in the UK, who is currently supporting startups in academia as the managing director at Founders at the University of Cambridge. So we sat down in London last week to catch up and discuss Gerard's vision of why now, in his opinion, is the time for academia to shine in the startup world. Gerard, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Now, uh, if we can start with a little bit of a background, maybe from your side, uh, for those who don't know you all that well, what's your your journey uh, been like so far? Journey, I would say I'll go from the start, I guess, uh, acoustic engineering, because I didn't really know what to do specifically, (laughs) because I had a, a real inclination towards the arts and as well as maths and physics. That was the best combination. But... Ultimately, I went into the music business, did artist management and music promotion, and then did an MBA, which then took me into digital product development, became head of music and video for a company called Orange, which I think is in the Netherlands as well, and was across Europe and is now in many countries as well still. And then did a lot of application development with Nokia and launched their app store mm-hmm. around you know, across 192 countries at the time and then did a short stint in venture capital with Nokia Ventures and then and then came across this organization called Tech City which was a government backed organization which I decided to take on as CEO right and which then evolved into Tech Nation mm-hmm. So what quite year, a mix. What year, what year was that? When when did Tech Nation become a thing? 2018. 2018. So really, in terms of your question, varied, quite varied. Uh, I was also a, a music journalist for a while in the music industry. So journalism, music industry, product development, but always a builder. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. And and just working with people, you know, meeting people, working with people, and creating things that hopefully would have societal change. And re- and right now, your title is. Right now, my title is Managing Director of Founders at the University of Cambridge, a brand new initiative, which we can probably talk about in the podcast, as well as being the founder and advisor now to Tech Nation. Right. So from music to business, was it a natural sort of uh, shift for you? Because for me, it's really a bit hard to uh, chart like a direct path between the two. No, I don't. Nothing I can look back and say was by design. <laughs> so uh, I think you just sense yourself going through different, different challenges right. and trying to kind of follow your heart as much as you can, and trying to take risks a little, you know, risks along the way to hopefully be, you know, to hopefully have an impact in your life. And yeah, that's probably been my north star, if, I, if I'm honest. So that's why it's a little bit perhaps unusual. <laughs> and you've moved around quite a bit because of that, right? Yes, that's right. So uh, I spent time in Paris uh, when we were building the new content division 
really exciting time at the time when entertainment and content was coming across, you know, over the top in terms of over to the devices, mm -hmm. IPTV, mobile devices, web, web streaming, and then also New York when I was with Nokia building the new app store at the time, because we had a brand new wave of, of, of new smartphones coming out. Right. Now, those were, those were great times. So there was a lot, of, a lot more excitement, I, I guess, about technology than, uh, than we can see right now. <laughs> I, I think at the time, frankly, looking back, I think the Europe as a whole was very much further ahead in the mobile industry. They could mm. have really done a lot more in the mobile industry and technology innovation was so far ahead in Europe than anywhere else in the world. And then okay. came along the iPhone which change a few things. Right, no, absolutely. Uh, so, okay, let's talk about the last, let's say, six years of the journey. So when Tech City became Tech Nation, what was the, what was the point of the organization? What was the idea behind it? And uh, what did you do to bring it to life? Sure. So Tech City was already a government initiative. Uh, I took it out of government alongside uh, Joanna Shields at the time, mm -hmm. who was the departing CEO. I stepped into her shoes and really, really then made it focus on entrepreneurs, founders, and, and scaling companies. And then Brexit happened, which was a right. significant political event that had potential ramifications on the industry. So I and the team put forward a proposal to make sure that we didn't lose any ground because mm -hmm. the UK was already doing well. And really Tech Nation was all about doubling down on digital innovation mm -hmm. and building an inclusive inclusive tech ecosystem for the whole of the UK and to make sure that we, you know we continued the momentum that was behind UK tech at the time and now looking back you know fast forward you know 6 7 years the UK is one of the most productive ecosystems for digital innovation by far the most valuable over a trillion dollars right and and 18 times in value since we started back in tech city at the time, over 10 years ago. But then that journey also came to an end, what was it, two years ago? It last year. Last year. Yes. So that's right. So it was a government-backed organization. Uh, we grew very quickly. And then there was a decision made to, the a substantial amount of money that came through from us uh, was decided to be offered to Barclays Bank. Mm -hmm. And uh, we decided to make a very difficult decision to have the company acquired, which was acquired by the Founders Forum Group. And and yeah, th things continue. So Tech Nation launched their latest uh, report on the tech talent visa scheme that they run uh, just a couple of days ago. So things are going well. Right. No, this is this is great to know that uh, things are things just keep happening. And uh, is is the mandate then the same for uh, for Tech Nation right now? Is the mission the same? Yes. The vision the same? Very much so. Yes. Right. Uh, but just the funding is not as uh, as as big as it used to be then. Well, no. It's just no. I wouldn't say that. I think the ambitions have never been bigger. I would say, okay. I would say that it's not government backed. Mm -hmm. So HSBC Innovation Banking, which has been doing so much over the last eight months since it was acquired since it acquired silicon valley bank and so things are going well so uh, reports they expect more data mm -hmm. expect more programs right 
So uh, and the, the report, uh, the report that you just mentioned, it's uh, an interesting timing because I just literally this morning sent out a newsletter mentioning the new potential immigration rules in the UK that could uh, threaten uh, the uh, immigrant entrepreneurs and immigrant founders. Is this something that uh, uh, Tech Nation is also working with on trying to change, trying to clarify, and so on? For sure. So they're doing quite a lot of work in that regard, not least because it runs a visa scheme. You know, tier one visa mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, to attract you know the best and brightest talent from around the world to come to the UK for sure. But I think now you know looking ahead, it's very much you know I think there's going to be a new wave of value creation coming out of the universities, which is why you know I'm really excited about this role that I've taken up in the last six months, which is the managing director mm -hmm. of founder, at, you know at found, of founders at the University of Cambridge. You know that, you know that's a that's an exciting time, not just for the UK but for the whole of Europe. What's different now? Like, why, why do you say that it's going to happen now? I think there are a couple of things. One is the fact that you have academics and people at university who are much more entrepreneurial in their mindset. Mm -hmm. And they want to turn their research into potentially a company or a license. And that's that's quite a wave. It's a new generation. That mm -hmm. wasn't quite the case, I would say, 10 years ago. Right. It's just no, a much more, you know, th they are much more at ease with entrepreneurship than ever before. The other side of the equation is that big companies are licensing less and are looking to make more acquisitions. And mm -hmm. venture capital is a great way, is a great model for turning inventions and di discoveries into new value. So those, and then you've got governments really keen to make sure that their universities are producing societal value mm -hmm, mm -hmm, through mm -hmm. intellectual property that turns into something good, something tangible. Right. And so you've got these forces at play. And I think... Those three forces at play are going to make a difference. And obviously, you've got artificial intelligence, which will speed up mm -hmm. scientific discovery. No, absolutely. And while we're on the topic of the government, uh, just to also maybe close the conversation about Tech Nation, what, uh, what are the lessons that you are bringing out of the journey, especially about uh, the role that the government has in uh, developing and growing uh, a, a techn technology ecosystem within a country or a region or a continent or globally? I, well, government is the fourth pillar of any ecosystem building. You know, you've got talent, capital, infrastructure, and then you've got political leadership. And political leadership is interwoven into those three other pillars. And it is making sure that all the constituents that make up an ecosystem are talking together because they're the most neutral party, I would say. Right. Secondly, you know, government is there to pump prime a new market. It's mm -hmm. not, it is market-led, but it's, it's supposed to create new markets. And is, so is regulation, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, whilst yeah, protecting yeah. customers, it's also supposed to create new markets, especially as we transition, for example, to net zero. That's going to be possible through regulation. So, but it's about me. It's about reaching the right balance. And so, the government has a role to play in you know putting capital into new spaces like quantum, for example. The UK government has been extremely proactive in backing mm -hmm. quantum as a new as a new area of growth, not least because when you combine that with artificial intelligence, it's just going to speed up so much discovery in science. Right. And that will create new opportunities, new companies, and new employment. And so, and then at the same time, it's been, you know, the UK government has been quite active in playing a role in looking at AI safety. So it, its role is it, to cut across a number of domains and make right. sure that they're talking to each other. Right.
And uh, and what is the role of uh, your current main organization, uh, the founder, founders of the University of Cambridge? Is it a, is it a VC fund? Is it an accelerator? How do you describe yourself? It's a it's an initiative by the university and Cambridge Enterprise, the innovation unit of the university, to really create fertile and faster pathways mm -hmm. for venture scientists. And so we are putting together a number of programs as well as building a community of specialists. And these specialists are founders, ex-founders, investors, and uh, executives in large companies. Between them all, we have a over 125 members, so to speak, and some of them are alum of the university, some mm -hmm. are not. We're just keen to have experts. And they've actually funded, they've founded 100 companies and they've backed over 800 companies worth over 15 billion pounds in value. So they've got a lot of expertise in how yes. you take an idea and a discovery into a full-blown and a full-fledged business. Right. And how many people do you have uh, going through these uh, these programs? So I can't say too much because we're excited to be announcing this in a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. but we will take up to 10 or 11 companies each time and mm -hmm. we'll do that hopefully you know looking at twice a year right so but uh, at which stage do you take them in is it yes. just like one person with an idea or, yes. or like whatever know how that yeah good great question a bit of both because mm -hmm. obviously this is deep science and and deep tech and deep tech is how do you turn a scientific discovery into a into a business and it's this high risk Absolutely. and so this is very much about backing talent who you can see are ambitious who are driven who are mission driven And so in some instances, we don't tend to take solo founders, although we are mm. going to be taking solo founders, but it, it's a team of two, a team of three, or a team of more than five. Mm -hmm. uh, so quite very early, but it's not just an idea. There has been some, in some instances, there has been some sort of market traction or valid, customer validation, mm -hmm. but the programs will be stage-based. So we'll take, okay. you know, one program will be very early stage. The other program will be more like pre-seed and seed. And as you're looking at these uh, these people at these uh, very early stage companies, do you already see what the main challenges for them are? What uh, what are the issues that they are all facing? And uh, also these people, but but if you look at the more wide uh, uh, ecosystem of uh, academic startups, uh, what are the main issues right now? Yes. So the point to make, I would say, is that uh, there's been about 1,700 or so spinouts in the UK over the last. 12 years, mm -hmm. and 10% of those have either IPO'd or been or merged or been acquired. That's a that, that's a pretty good ratio. That's it's a very, very, very high ratio, right? Which is why I'm so bullish on UK universities playing their role in this new space. And that's because obviously you're dealing with high achieving talent mm -hmm. and highly driven people who want to turn their research into something impactful. Right. And they're really driven by impact. However, To your question, a big challenge is capital, patient capital to be mm -hmm. specific. So capital put in by investors who are playing the long game. And the long game could mean 10 years or more. Can the university itself be such an investor? Of course. And that's what we do at the University of Cambridge, investing you know, over 10 million a year, 20 or 30 investments a year mm -hmm. across a number of portfolio companies to basically be the anchor, mm -hmm. but to co-invest alongside other players. And that's the secret to an ecosystem, right? It's like, you don't go it alone. You make sure you drive partnerships with other investors. And so that's why, you know, we're keen to build this ecosystem or build this community of investors and founders, not only in Cambridge, but in London, in San Francisco, in Boston, in Singapore, 
you know, just make it as global as possible. Because in some instances, their market might be, you know, Africa, not necessarily the UK or Europe. So we have to think globally in that regard. But the challenge is finding customers Mm -hmm. who are keen to back these early stage discoveries and businesses. Secondly, patient capital. And thirdly, research that comes with translational funding. Mm -hmm. Meaning the government and any government, I would argue, and I would encourage is to look at research, not in its purity. Mm -hmm. It's like, make sure that there is money attached to that research to see if it can translate into societal value. And that's something that I think sometimes governments take for granted. It's like, we'll just put money into research and let's just hope it does something. No, you've got to allocate money on top of that research money to see how it can translate into something else that is meaningful to us as people. Interesting. Now, that that makes a lot of sense. And when you look outside of the UK, for example, across Europe, but also at the US, of course, what do you see as the best practices of uh, academic accelerators and programs like your own? I think MIT Boston is, you know, really high up there, mm-hmm. uh, especially the engine. So they have venture funds with different vintages, and then they have accelerator programs, incubator programs that attach to those funds. And that's really impressive. I mean, obviously, the technology transfer space in the US is slightly different to the UK, but I would say that you are seeing a lot more of that. And that's what founders of the University of Cambridge is all about, is mm-hmm. to make sure that we have these fertile pathways. It is competition-led and programmatic, mm-hmm. meaning that if you don't get onto this program, it doesn't mean that you're not good as an entrepreneur. It just means that you might need to take more time to perfect an idea at your business or idea and just come back the next time. But just making it easy for investors to engage, because you know investors are time-poor people. And so the easier and more convenient they can engage with an ecosystem, especially at around the university that mm-hmm. has a... A certain culture, the better. The more capital will come in. So we're that we're that bridge, and that's what I've seen work well in other places. And when we also look at uh, the uh, landscape of issues that uh, uh, startups may be facing, I don't know if it's the case in the UK and uh, in Cambridge in particular, but it does happen quite often that uh, issues come at the stage of transferring the IP rights and figuring out whether the university has to have a uh, a place in the cap table of the startup. So what do you see as the best way of uh, solving this and not allowing this to uh, stand in the way of the startup success? Great question. So... I think that IP management is certainly a challenge because how are you to know what the future value of this business or the future value of this technology is going to be? So it's a negotiation. And the downside of that negotiation is that it can take time because you'll have very passionate professors, stroke scientists, Mm -hmm. dealing with much more business-oriented people. They'll have to thrash it out. (laughs) So so I think... I think I think there's much look there is a lot more of an inclination towards mm-hmm. standardization. Now the good news is that the University of Cambridge is by far the lowest in Europe when it comes to right. IP stake stake. It's around 10%. Mm-hmm. In some instances in the UK, I'm ashamed to say that some universities take 40 50% plus. Now that is just not going to be a business. Exactly. Because it's going to alienate any follow-on investor to say, are you kidding? There's just no way I'm putting money into a business where half of it is already owned by an institution like a university. It's just a fact. It's just, yeah. they're yeah. just yeah. not they're not being market-driven or market-led. However, they've played a role. I fully get the fact that universities play a huge role in creating research that is of value. 
So it's so I think you're going to see a lot more standardization mm -hmm. of the different tiers, depending on the different types. You know, AI software, life sciences, sustainability, you know, therapeutics. There is a different percentage IP attached to those different sectors for different okay. reasons. Okay, yeah, that would that make a lot of sense. And do you do do you think do you see this happening? This standardization? Do you do you see these terms coming closer to each other, like 100%. with different institutions, different countries? Hundred percent. So the UK, the UK government last year uh, produced a spin-out review, so it really uh -huh. looked at the universities and how can they do more to get their research into into society through new companies, and this shone a light on this. And on the back of that, there's going to be a number of there's been a number of recommendations which are being taken forward. And there'll be much more transparency right. about the share. And when you have that transparency, you'll definitely see universities not wanting to be the bottom of that table. No, absolutely. Um, so, and that's a good thing. And I think that's where competition can play a role. Um, but I have to say, I'm very impressed by other places in Europe like ETH and Zurich. I was mm -hmm. just talking to them recently. Really impressive. And actually... In terms of when you look at spin-out value, the UK is by far the highest, followed by Switzerland. Right. And because of ETH. And that's broken down by stage and unicorn value and everything else. But yeah, they have they're impressive too. Great. And so to wrap this up, I really want to ask the question that uh, comes down to our own mission as TNW. So we one of our mottos is that we look at what is the next in tech. So in your opinion, especially since you're exposed uh, so much to all the deep tech uh, fundamental research and the research has been uh, commercialized, what is the next in tech? What are your favorite verticals and technologies at this point? Yes. Yeah, so looking at Cambridge, because that gives you a real insight into what's coming next over the next 10 years. And I have to say, it's really diverse. So mm -hmm. I'll, st I'll start with things like, for example, teams looking at turning polluting plastics into green hydrogen. So energy transition yeah. is a big one. Wow. That's a big one. Uh, that's not the least of it, by the way. There's another company looking at turning carbon dioxide into battery storage, like energy storage. Like, that's a big area that I think will get more and more funded. Mm -hmm. Another one is biotech. Now, Cambridge is by far you know, the leader in this, not least because AstraZeneca, the global headquarters, is based in Cambridge. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and so multinomic sequencing, I think the collection synthesis of data, biological lifelike data, is just collapsing. And the analysis is being driven by AI. And so multinomic sequencing is definitely a growth area. Mm -hmm. Quantum. Obviously, I was actually, I had the privilege to be in a lab with a quantum computer with Hitachi, which is one of our partners on the program. Unbelievable. I didn't even have any idea that they operate at minus 270 yeah, degrees yeah, Celsius. Yeah, yeah. Now, with quantum, just to give you a sense of, the, the, of what we're talking about, what would normally take a quantum computer four minutes to solve a complex problem, it would take a supercomputer today 10,000 years. It's it's really hard to imagine, though. I have to say, it's just like can you the, the scale is, a, is a, the is computational power to be able to find new discoveries that we as cognitive people, I mean, as a human cognitive, cognitive, we have no, you know, that is that is a new area that I think will be mm -hmm. of growth. Mm -hmm. So when you combine you know hardware computational power with AI, I think new things will happen. And so, and I think. Uh, sustainability is the other one, mm -hmm. a general sustainability, not just, you know, energy transition, but just how do we get to net zero? And that's actually been quite representative in our cohort. And a lot of these are, you know, powered by AI. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, AI is not 
you know, it's not a domain in itself. It's going to be a general purpose technology that mm -hmm. will impact, in, impact all sorts of things. And this is, this is something that you are watching closely uh, in, your, in your position. 100%. And I'm really, it's such a privilege, Andre, to be honest with you. It's such a privilege to be spending time with these venture scientists who have got this access and capability and passion in areas such as, you know, as I said, multinomic sequencing, therapeutics, you know, sustainability. It, it is the future because our, I think our challenges are a lot more complex than we think. Right. I think we've come, we've come through a wave of digital innovation, but I think the next wave, we have to back these scientists and venture mm -hmm. scientists because our, our problems are becoming a lot more complicated <laughs> <laughs> and we need brain power on it. And we need capital to attach to this brain power to solve some of these issues. Right, absolutely. Now, this is all we have time for, Gerard. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks a million and good luck with everything that you're uh, doing with uh, founders at the University of Cambridge. Thank you so much for having me. Been a pleasure. Big thanks once again to Gerard for finding the time to come on the show. This is all we have time for in this episode of the TNW Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you like our show, please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on social media. Just search for The Next Web and you will find us almost everywhere. Our music and sound engineering is done by SoundPulse. Feel free to email us anytime with any questions, suggestions, and opinions. We are always at podcast at thenextweb.com. I am Andre Degler. And I'm Linnea Algen. And I will see you in a few weeks from now. In the meantime, have a great week. I'm going to talk to you next Wednesday. Linnea, have a great, well-deserved holiday. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.